that night the city burnt, and the mother church of the city burnt with her. And yet the tower and the spire still stand, soaring to the sky, and I feel that's an emblem of the eternal majesty and love of God. Greetings. You are tuned into the Miserable Offenders podcast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation as we seek answers to life's big questions, drawing wisdom from the well of traditional Anglican theology. This is a production of the North American Anglican. Hello and welcome to the Miserable Offenders podcast. My name is Jesse Nigro. I'm the editor of the North American Anglican, and today I'm joined by Father Isaac Rayberg and Deacon Andrew Brazier. Father, will you, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yes, I'm Father Isaac Rayberg. I'm the uh, rector of All Saints Anglican Church in San Antonio and the uh, canon for liturgy for the Anglican Diocese of the West. I'm so glad to be here again. Hey, this is Andrew Brazier. I'm a deacon with the Armed Forces and Chaplaincy Diocese and the Anglican Church of North America, and also serve as their chancellor. And I am so glad to have the three of us, three of our voices together on the, on the same recording once again. It's been a little while since we've touched on Paul Elmer Moore's essay, The Spirit of Anglicanism. But uh, what do you guys think of what we've done so far with Moore and uh, what he's discussed thus far? What's what's your appraisal of where he's at, maybe theologically or churchmanship-wise? What uh, what does he have to bring to the table that people might uh, be able to benefit from? Well, I think, uh, for, for one, we do see some of his biases coming through. Um, he is working mm-hmm. from a, a generally Anglo-Catholic perspective, and that that typical from his, for his day of my, mildly liberal scholarship that came with that. And so there's going to be a few places where um, some of that's just a little bit dated, and that's okay, you know. But but I, I do I do like especially that he's been um, pointing us back to the. Um, who was it they called it the, the great tradition was that um roger olson that liked to, to, to use that phrase all the time yeah absolutely I, I i've picked up on the same sorts of things andrew yeah and i have to say that uh for the most part you know it's a pretty good introduction to uh anglicanism and anglican history especially for those you know who've never really come to uh anglicanism and really examined it before you know, he's fairly charitable on uh, kind of the different strands of churchmanship that, that were present in the Anglican Church during this time period. So if you just kind of want a, a Reader's Digest version of the history of really the, the thought that uh, runs through the strand of Anglicanism, you know, not a, not a bad place to really start. So, uh, so far, so good. I agree. I think as a, as a survey of what he sort of says, for convenience sake, we call the 17th century, um, you really couldn't find a better sort of short place to begin. You get a, a long list of names, you get a little snapshot of who was famous for writing what and what their real interests were. And I think uh, as, as, as Anglo-Catholic biases go, um, some of them tend to be more true. And uh, the interest of the Carolines in patristic sources 
and the 17th century Anglican divines in general in sort of uh, not ignoring the reformational sources of the continent, but to utilizing those, but also um, really drawing from the church fathers to sort of, uh, I guess, make make their claims um, more powerful and potent, especially um, as they're interacting with Roman Catholic uh, interlocutors. Um, with that being said, if you've been following along, then you will know that we have left off at the end of Roman numeral six, section Roman numeral six in Moore's essay. And our format has been to sort of take turns reading a passage or so. So I volunteered to do the first run. And uh, you guys can tell me if you hear anything as I begin here that uh, is worth teasing out more. All right, Roman numeral seven. Looking backwards, then, upon the theology of the Caroline Divines, we can see that their manifest intention was to steer a middle course between the excesses of Romanist and radical Protestant. Clearly, as such a middle course was not in the nature of compromise or of hesitation to commit themselves to conviction, but was governed from a positive determination to preserve the just balance between fundamentals and accessories, which was threatened by an authority vested in the infallibility, whether of tradition or of scripture. So far, there can be no doubt in regard to the guiding principle of the Anglican via media. And at this point, if our sense of direction be right, we may venture upon a further step in definition in the light of the continuity of the two movements instituted by Hooker and Gore. Here, indeed, we must proceed warily. But if we are looking for a single term to denote the ultimate law of Anglicanism, I do not see that we can do better than adopt a title which offers itself a peculiarly descriptive despite the unsavory repute it may have acquired from its usurpation by certain modern sects of philosophy, I refer to the title pragmatism. The self-styled pragmatism of today is commonly one who, pretending to eschew what he regards, or pragmatist rather, what he regards as unverifiable theory, limits his assent to facts, and whose criterion of fact is that which works, works, that is, by the test of physical experience. But etymologically, there is no reason why the word pragmatism should be so narrowed in its under its meaning as to include only one half of human experience. Rightly understood, it may be said that among philosophers, Plato was the supreme pragmatist, insofar as he sought to defend his belief in, quote, ideas, end quote, as facts more real than the objects of nature by showing that there is a spiritual intuition larger, deeper, more positive and trustworthy, more truly scientific 
than the clamorous rout of physical sensation. And by the same token, there is no reason why we should shrink from describing the genius of Anglicanism as supremely pragmatic. Whew, that was a mouthful. Gentlemen? <laughs> <laughs> well, wh where to start there, right? Um, he ends with a, a long justification of just the, the use of the word pragmatism, but the, <laughs> he begins with an interesting claim on... Uh, the Anglicanism being a via media between the infallibility of tradition and the infallibility of scripture. Uh, Father Raber, you want to comment on that first? Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty anachronistic, I would say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that there there we go, seeing some of those um, early twentieth century um, mildly liberal biases right there. I, I don't think you're going to find in the in the Caroline Divines, you know, your 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 Lancelot Andrews, um, John Coson, Thomas Ken, William Laud, or even you know King Charles himself, anybody that says, well, yeah, Scripture's not infallible, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's just not an idea they're dealing with. Um, now, I, I and I do think that that they are going to be dealing with that um, lack of infallibility of tradition. That's that's certainly a mark of the Anglican way throughout its post-Reformation history, where there's a high value for tradition. Um, I'm reading through the homilies kind of as part of my Lenten disciplines, and I'm always struck at how often the church fathers are quoted in the homilies. Um, Absolutely. It's, it's always... Yeah, scripture first, then the apocrypha, and then the, then the fathers every time. And, and you know, and that's and that's arguably the most radically reformed official document <laughs> in in the Anglican tradition. Mm -hmm. So I do think I do think that's 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 part of it. Um, but but yeah, I, I think I think he's bringing in some of his later perspectives and um, what uh, and uh, uh, projecting them onto the Caroline divines. I agree. Um, Andrew, anything on this or something else that you that uh, perked your ears while I was reading? Yeah, and so, you know, I, I just got through saying, you know, that, hey, overall, it's a pretty good essay to introduce you to Anglicanism. You know, we've kind of spent this podcast on, uh, I wouldn't say nitpicking, because it's valid points we've been making, but for someone who's picking this up, reading it to get a taste of Anglicanism, this is one of those places where, uh, like Father Isaac said, I think you need to you know, take what he is saying without any citation to history and kind of go back to the articles. And in particular, I'm looking at Article 6 of the Articles of Religion of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. And it makes it pretty plain that it's not necessarily the Anglican position of saying that, you know, whether authority is vested in, quote, the infallibility of whether tradition or of Scripture. You go to the articles, and it's pretty clear in Article 6 that, quote, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought request, me, requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Old and New Testament, of which authority was never any doubt in the Church. And so, and then it proceeds from there to, of course, list out the books of uh, Holy Scripture, for both Old and New Testament. But the point that's being made there in the article is that when it comes to salvation, 
there is no doubt that it's to the scriptures is where we go to as Anglicans. And then the only other point that I'd make is that where he talks about, quote, so far there could be no doubt in regard to the guiding principle of the Anglican via media, close quote from him. It, it kind of, you know, doubles down on what we hear a lot in contemporary Anglicanism of the via media being one foot Protestant, one foot Catholic, instead of what we've been talking about throughout this entire podcast of it really being a reformed Catholicism, that if we have one foot in two different, you know, lakes, is that we are reformed and we are Catholic, not that we're trying to get in between, you know, two lakes and sit on some sort of, you know, sandbar and, you know, kind of dip a toe in Protestantism and kind of dip a toe in Catholicism. That's just <laughs> not Anglicanism. Although that does sound refreshing. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> um, yeah, I couldn't agree more with what both of you have said. I, it's always a safe bet if you want to uh, evaluate someone's claims about Anglicanism or any other tradition, to go to the confessions and see, well, how does this uh, shore up against the standard? And, uh, yeah, the 39 articles are pretty clear about the authority of Scripture. And, and not only that, but I felt like in phrasing it in this way, uh, more sort of missed maybe the the bigger thing going on that's maybe more profound about the difference between... Anglicanism, which I think really in this particular attitude shares with uh, the sort of high Reformed or Lutheran traditions and Papalism and Radical Protestantism, which is this. I think Romanists and Radical Protestants are actually both sort of Papalistic insofar as one believes that one individual has the infallible interpretation of the scriptures and he sits in Rome, and the other believes very often that one individual has the infallible interpretation and he sits in my armchair. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there's a sense in which there is almost an absolutist interpretation and it does sort of um, either, you know boil down to the one individual reading or an individual who happens to live in the Vatican. So I, I find those two traditions actually more similar in this regard than, um, and, and sort of, I would put them together as a juxtaposition against a more reformed Catholic and, and dare I say patristic um, appreciation of scripture as the norm that norms all other norms. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, it, it's it's pretty obvious when you read our our um, earliest divines, and even even through this Caroline period and beyond, that there is this idea that in order to to have Catholicity, re Reformation was necessary. And, and so, yeah, it, it's not, it's not this. You know, we, we sometimes and we're we're kind of belaboring this point, but it's it's not that we're trying to have our cake and eat it too between being Protestants and Catholics. But that we that that our belief is that what we got from the Reformation, especially going back to the sources of the scriptures, um, back and and also to a more um, patristic understanding of what the fathers are saying of the of the great tradition, rather than kind of through all the um, some some of the the muddling in the later Middle Ages, 
that mm-hmm. that that does give us greater catholicity you know you you read um john jewell's apology for the church of england and his his entire premise is that by by becoming reformed we are actually more catholic than those who are calling themselves catholic mm-hmm. exactly I, I oftentimes will have, you know, we're, we're a very high church parish, um, lots of smells and bells on the, on the spikier end of things, probably definitely on the, on the top end in our particular diocese. Nice. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's fun. Yeah. We, 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 we have a continuum background and so that's going to have, um, you know, that, that typical Anglo Catholic continuum background. Um, but since, since, leaving those circles, we, we have kind of gotten a bit more classical than, than we used to be. But, um, I, I do often have folks that will, uh, who, who have, who have kind of been feeling this pull between Anglicanism and, and Roman Catholicism, um, will, will come into my office and basically ask me to explain the difference. And I always say that the, the, the most important thing, kind of the fundamental issue, is that issue of authority. Mm-hmm. You know, for, for, for us, according to our formularies and the way it's going to be practiced in our diocese, in our parish, um, hopefully in our province, <laughs> um, you know, the, the scripture always, that's where the buck stops. You know, scripture has ultimate authority. Everything else is subject to scripture. And whereas for, for, Roman Catholicism, Scripture is a part of the greater tradition, but but it is subject to that greater tradition. Yeah, it, and I think um, for a lot of people, and and we kind of Andrew and I discussed this a bit in our last episode. For a lot of people who maybe haven't delved deeply into um, these waters, there can seem to be a lot of similarity between Roman Catholicism and uh, Anglicanism. I happen to uh, teach at a classical academy that is attached to an ordinary parish. So I kind of get, you know, in, in my face, sort of the, 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 both the differences and the similarities are, are pretty plain. Um, but wow, you know, the closer you get, the more those differences to my mind at least, actually stand out more profoundly. Um, and, and yes, it is this issue of authority, but also just sort of all the little ways that that, that issue has trickled down into the life of the Christian. Um, and, and in the end, I, I think it's, it's a different approach to Scripture and where we're getting our information from, so to speak which leads to a, a profoundly different attitude um, as far as, you know, how the Christian goes about their life. And frankly, I think at a deep level, whether or not they feel like they can know that God loves them. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, it's hard to put a finger on that, but you know it when you see it and when you experience it. Um, but without, you know, uh, belaboring that point much more i know we've done a lot <laughs> and uh you know papalism has come up in this podcast quite a bit in this in this essay um does any of you want to comment on a his reliance on charles gore as sort of a figurehead of the way forward or b um his 
use of pragmatism. I will say this. I think he does get something right, whether you want to call it a via media or or not. Um, the Anglican uh, principle of you know of, of deriving our authority the way we do is in fact a principle and not just sort of a lazy or cowardly uh, splitting the difference. Yes, yeah, so I, I did find it interesting his his his. Um quoting of or his uh, his referencing the two movements instituted by Hooker and Gore because both of them are outside of that Caroline period. Mm-hmm. Um, you know Hooker Hooker of course was the uh, probably the most prominent theologian in the Elizabethan era. We have the laws of ecclesiastical polity. Um, I've recommended on the podcast before but the Davenant Institute has um, been doing a modernization of Hooker's laws which is really a must read for students of the Anglican tradition, and I would say um, reformed theology, period, not just mm-hmm. Anglicans. Um, yeah, and, and, and Hooker, Hooker is solidly non-Puritan, but, but solidly reformed. And then Charles Gore is, was the Bishop of Oxford um, in the 19th century, late 19th century, and he's mostly known for... Um, kind of reinstating certain monastic things among certain communities, um, really having a, um, I mean, he, he does, he does kind of epitomize uh, a 19th century Anglo-Catholic approach, um, including that, um, trying to reconcile the biblical criticism, scientific discovery, as well as the Catholic tradition. And, and, and so yeah, I did find that very interesting, and, and and I do think that what we see with Hooker is kind of there's a certain amount of trying to de-Calvinist eyes, if that's a way to put it, uh. Hooker. <laughs> um, and and I, and I do think I do think that it, it does seem that the kind of religion that Charles Gore, Bishop Gore, was was promoting is the kind of thing that um, more. Um, is very representative of, which is not a bad thing. It's just, it's just not necessarily what the Caroline divines, and certainly not what Richard Hooker were looking at. It's it's a different animal in certain ways. Mm. Yeah, I, I I agree. Andrew, any thoughts on that? Yeah, nothing really to add with what Father Isaac uh, was saying with with Hooker and with Gore. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, my only comment on the the pragmatism is. Yeah, it was interesting. It seemed a little bit, to me at least, off from the rest of his, his essay. But uh, I think there is some, some ounce of truth there that can be mined in terms of he ends this paragraph talking about there's no reason which we should shrink from describing the genius of Anglicanism as supremely pragmatic. Now, I'm not quite sure what he's trying to get there, but I will agree that that kind of old British pragmatism is definitely something that is kind of inherited in Anglicanism uh, across the world. And what I mean by that is the fact that we root our authority into the scriptures, but obviously how do we necessarily under- understand those scriptures? We look back to the tradition where it helps, specifically the tradition of the church, with the church fathers, in order to assist and guide us in terms of understanding the nature of, of what the scriptures uh, means. And uh, that's where I think Father Isaac makes a great point that the book of homilies constantly cite to first the scripture 
then the Apocrypha, then the Church Fathers. And even the 39 articles cite to the Church Fathers to prove that this is not some new religion or uh, deviance from the historic Christian faith. In Article 6, I was reading from it earlier, and I uh, ended where the, the books of the Old and New Testament are laid out. And afterwards, it lays out the books that are commonly known as the Apocrypha, and it cites straight to uh, St. Jerome uh, as being the person who lays out that these books that are known as the Apocrypha are commonly read in the church, but they're not uh, used to establish any doctrine. And then likewise, later on in the articles, when it discusses, uh, I believe, the Lord's Supper, uh, as memory serves, it cites to uh, St. Augustine. Uh, actually, when it comes to the whether or not the, I believe it says the wicked uh, actually eat and partake in the Lord's Supper, it cites to St. Augustine uh, that, in fact, you're not a partaker of Christ, but a partaker in damnation if you're unworthily taking the Lord's Supper. So that just to say that we have this pragmatism of let's look at what the Scripture says first and always, and that is where the authority rests. And in terms of understanding it, you know, be pragmatic about it. Uh, using that three wheel, uh, that three legged stool, which I, I don't like that analogy, but really kind of a three wheel tricycle of the big wheel being scripture and the other two wheels being reason and tradition, uh, as Hooker uh, puts it, uh, in order to guide us in terms of what our doctrine is and what we believe as Anglicans. Nice. The Anglican tricycle. I think I've heard. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Dean so that's jo- not Jonathan Riches of uh, of RE Seminary called a big wheel. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely not my own analogy. Someone far more <laughs> learned and creative than I came up with that analogy. Well, I like I, it. Go ahead. I've go been ahead. reading the um, the laudable practice blog a lot lately. They've been, and, and I'm not quite sure who who is behind it, other than that that he seems to be a um, Irish churchman. Um, of, of, a, of a very cla- old school high church bent. But one of the things that, that he's been talking about a lot is this idea of the prayer book tradition having a native piety um, for the English speaker. And I think that does speak to some of that pragmatism. You know, the, 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 the way that it has developed in, in, in the Anglophone world um, it is, does, does really reflect that native piety. That is a fascinating subject that I would love to explore at length, but I don't think time permits within this episode. <laughs> um, but I, I, I really like that, that train of thought. Um, my two cents here would simply be that um, to this day, there are probably people who see Gore as a hero, and there are probably others, and I'm sort of count myself among them who see him as maybe introducing some problematic precedents into the church when it comes to uh, maybe just not being quite uh, questioning or critical enough of the current academic, uh, you could say, understanding of, of a variety of issues when it comes to uh, insisting that then theology must be consistent with the sciences. I mean, I think we all agree that God created the world and that his revealed truth is not going to contradict 
um, the truth that it can be discovered about the world through other means. Um, the, the, the problem is, is that when we're poking around with uh, microscopes or uh, archaeology or the like, that our best guesses um, tend to change pretty frequently. So, um, yeah, I think it, this is just the issue of biblical criticism, and, and it was obviously a big deal for Moore. Um, with with pratic, pragmatism, I thought he kind of <laughs> went out of his way to uh, justify the use of the word, but I agree with, with um, both of you that there's a sense in which it does make sense. <laughs> it does make sense to use uh, the term. And it's to me, it's, it seems like the best comparison here would be, well, what are, what are some of the big differences between traditional Anglican beliefs and, and just the way of doing theology and, say, a Roman Catholicism? Uh, in Roman Catholicism, very often there's a sort of popular piety that has a way of trickling its into the official dogma of the church. There's a, a nun or a monk or a lay person who had some ecstatic experience and nobody wants to be on the other side of what seems to be holy or pious and therefore it's kind of hard to doubt what they've said and um, very often the content of these experiences either have little or nothing to do with the gospel or revealed truth in the scriptures, or if they do, I'm not sure if they're adding much. And so um, the Anglican sort of pragmatism, I think, shows up in this way. It's like sort of a careful, maybe reserved, like, hmm, that's interesting. We don't want to be over necessarily doubting, but we're not going to sort of grab all of these things and try and make them uh, necessary for belief um, for the layperson. And, and I think that's just a very different attitude. Um, and all of that being said, I think we ought to move on. Who wants to take the, uh, the next turn of reading here? I'll go ahead and jump on the next paragraph. All right, Andrew. It's all yours. All righty. Such a pragmatism, then, if the word be allowed, and if the more recent theology since the publication of Lex Mundi be the true heir and interpreter of the Carolina age, would come to this. Let us consider some questions. In the first place, did the person Jesus ever live? Was he born as our records assert, and did he suffer death on the cross? Secondly, did he, again as the records assert, think and speak of himself as the Messiah, the Son of God? Now these plainly are the questions of simple history. Excuse me. Now these plainly are questions of simple history. The answer to which depends on the weighing of documentary evidence, exactly as in the case of any other recorded event of the past. So far, the truth of the narrative may be granted without committing oneself to any supernatural creed. The real problem of Christianity begins with a question of a different order. When Jesus thought and spoke of himself as the Messiah, the Son of God. Was he what he proclaimed himself to be, or was he suffering a delusion? This also comes down to a simple question of fact, pragma, as do finally all questions of truth. But quite obviously the answer is to be sought otherwise than in the mere weighing of documentary evidence. We have passed from the province of history to that of philosophy and religion. All Christians of course believe in the actuality of this fact, 
If the Anglican differs from the Romanist or the radical Protestant, it is because more definitely and consciously that either he justifies his belief by the pragmatic test of experience, namely, does it work? It is not that he rejects authority for an unchecked individualism. He sees that his personal experience is no more than a fragment of the larger experience of mankind. It must be controlled at every step by that accumulation of wisdom which is the voice of the church. What he rejects is the absolute of authority based on a, a priori theories of infallibility. Rather, looking within and without, he asks the consequences of believing or not believing. How does acceptance of the dogma of the Incarnation work out in practice? Does faith bring with it any proof of its objective validity? So there's a lot to digest there. And we picked on Father Isaac the first time around, so Jesse, I'll kick this one over to you. Oh, no. <laughs> um, well, I think, you know, he, he introduces so many of these ideas in the last paragraph that we've discussed some of it already. Um, and again, Lux Mundi being this uh, collection of essays that were gathered and published by Charles Gore um, that deal with this issue of the, the liberal um, critical scholarship of the time and the fact that um, people in the academy, and when we say the academy, I think nowadays we think of a secular institution, but it's good to remember that um, for centuries, Church of England academies were Christian Anglican institutions. Um, and so this, uh, this is sort of part of, you know, maybe one, one of many tipping points where the... Uh, again, the academic consensus was that we ought to treat these Bible stories as unbelievers and to look at them skeptically. And there's a sort of, if we can't find evidence that Jesus ever lived in the, then we basically shouldn't uh, assume that this is a person who ever walked the earth, etc. And it seems like Moore is saying, and, and actually, this is a, a very similar turn to what Karl Barth does in, in response to the, the liberal uh, learning of his own day, um, which is to say, well, whether it's true or not, uh, can we just do our theology? Like, let's, let's just, as a Christian community, um, assume that it's true and then discuss what those repercussions would be. And I think... That's uh, that's it's an interesting move. It's one that sort of says let's let the the scholars debate amongst themselves, which is not necessarily a faithless move. It just says um, I'm not going to be waiting on pins and needles and you know it, and reading the uh, the headlines and worrying that my faith is going to be shattered by the next. Uh, uh, archaeological excavation or the next discovery at a new dig or something. And so I, I find that particular emphasis uh, useful in the pragmatic sense. Um, yeah, and then this this uh, other issue of authority, 
which he he sort of sees them as as really intimately connected i think about the difference between the roman catholic way and the anglican way actually does kind of get back to the the uh, point i was making earlier about individual sort of spiritual experiences and that being that the the anglican perspective is like look these all have to be sort of uh contextualized within the the greater body of divinity and ultimately i think we would also insist let's make sure we go to scripture first but well, that's my uh that's my first reaction um what say you two i i do um I like I like that that uh, towards the end where he says uh, what he that, that is the Anglican rejects is the absolute of authority based on an a priori theories of infallibility rather looking within and without he asks the consequences of believing or not believing and I, I do think that's that is a, a, an important thing there um, in that it's it's not we're not called to make blind leaps of faith. Even even a blind leap of faith in the infallibility of the Holy Scriptures, but we 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 do believe in their infallibility um, because of that witness from the apostles, from the prophets. You know, we can see the Holy Spirit is speaking through the prophets and the apostles, as attested by the fathers, as attested by um, the reformers and uh, our, our divines throughout history um, to, to the point where with all of that evidence to reject it the way that you do see happening in the 19th century um, among certain, certain schools of thought, even within our own tradition, becomes something pretty radical. I mean, you're, you're almost eschewing that pragmatism that that uh, more is um is holding up here interesting point andrew any thoughts from you you know I, I like that uh the way he talks about you know does it work in terms of theology jesse uh, you made a comment that that i liked on um, i'm gonna butcher how you phrased it a second ago but uh, really just kind of establishing that for the Anglican, it's turning back to Scripture to see, does it fit with what we have received? And from first reading of this paragraph, it sounds like a questioning of key doctrines of the faith. But I think really the point that he's making is, when it comes to something like the Incarnation, does it work? Well, it comes from Scripture. Does it work? Well, you know, what is the nature of why the Incarnation happened in order to save us from our own sins and from death and in order for that to happen it only makes sense that god would become incarnate as a human in order to achieve victory over both sin and death and that's really where our theology comes from ultimately which is it comes ultimately from scripture and so these doctrines that we derive also come from scripture and the question of does it work is one that is very i won't say it's exclusively reformed in his thinking but it's definitely something that the reformers really were trying to whittle down to during the reformation you know lutheran and uh reformed as in geneva alike and england for that matter 
looking to what are the essentials of the faith, what is the wheat, what is the shaft that is uh, you know, accumulated over the ages uh, during the, the so-called Middle Ages, and how can we get to the root of our belief in our faith by going to Scripture? So these doctrines that we espouse necessarily should be ones that fit within Scripture. So I agree with him in that, and uh, it was an interesting way in which he wrote this paragraph, but I think it does ultimately come down to the basis of our faith, which is, what is a faith that works? And for the stereotypical Englishman, and, uh, and I dare say for those of us who are former you know, colonists of the, the British Empire, it makes sense that we want to look at something that works and kind of get to the, the, the practicalities uh, of our Christian religion. Yeah, when, when looking at the Incarnation, I'm reminded of, um, oh gosh, I forget which church father said this, but, um, uh, you know, what he has not assumed he cannot redeem. You know, the, the Incarnation has to be what we say if redemption's going to be worth a darn. <laughs> Is that Athanasius? I think it's Athanasius. Yeah, I think that's Athanasius. I, 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 I didn't want to misspeak on that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, well, that, now, now if, if it's wrong, then all three of us were wrong at yeah. least. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's great. It's did, he, did either of you find this statement sort of, uh, it, and it shouldn't, but it did sort of stand out to me as, oh, interesting. All Christians, of course, believe in the actuality of this fact. Now, I agree with Moore, but could he possibly have known that in his own Episcopal Church or in the Church of England that there would be prominent bishops soon to come that would deny these facts outright? Yeah, I had um, uh, a family member who, who converted to Judaism asked me a while back. Um, he says, well, would it matter to your faith if Jesus never existed? And I said, absolutely it would. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he was astounded at that. He, he, um, he, it didn't make sense to him why these teachings would require a historical Jesus. And obviously, we what we see is that they're they're they're, you know, he, he is missing the point of what Christianity is saying. Though. Right. Pretty important for Saint Paul whether or not um, a resurrection exactly. of a real Jesus ever happened. So, yeah, gotta truly agree with weird you there. To be pity. Yeah, truly weird to be pity among all of mankind if Christ is not uh, actually who he says he is, much less if he never existed. And. Uh, and really to that uh, effect, that's something I've been thinking about while reading this kind of litany uh, of different doctrines uh, that as he writes it, he, he of course says, like you mentioned, Jesse, that you know, of course Christians believe this. And I was thinking the same thing. Like, it was kind of ironic. The time period you're writing, you're about to have a lot of bishops come out and question and even deny these, these key doctrines, which uh, kind of goes to show that even in our own time as Anglicans, it's easy for people to say, well, look, you've got bishops who say this, that, and the other. And once again, we can say, well, the good thing is we're not a church of the bishops. We're a church based upon the scripture. And even with the bishop's error, we can show that a bishop is in error by pointing to the scriptures, which is what many an Orthodox bishop has done in the, in the past uh, and currently, whenever there is uh, errant doctrine being preached or being claimed, it's going back to the scriptures going back to the, the fathers and going back to our own internal Anglican tradition by looking at the articles and looking at the Book of Common Prayer in its classic uh, form. 
Yeah, I, I think if if you wanted to characterize what is sort of maybe the, the great beleaguering issue or problem with Anglicanism, uh, at least since the last century, I think it, it would have to be, it's not so much authority, it's obedience. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe a lack of really just courageous willingness amongst those in authority to um, require obedience. But there's a sense in which, you know what? You don't believe this? Okay. You take the collar off, you go sit in the pew, and you think about it a while. You don't <laughs> continue your position and uh, as an advocate for the gospel, right? You know, we, we, we ought to have um, handled these things with, uh, you know, grace, no doubt, but with um, a real confidence that that apparently was not used at the time. And um, I think we're still sort of in the shadow of that sort of just lack of confidence that, that obedience might require us to, to hurt someone's feelings every once in a while. Yeah, that's well said, Jesse. You know, it's not a problem of authority in Anglicanism. It's a problem of obedience. I think you really, you really, you know, hit the nail on the head on that one. And I do think that it's, it's real easy for the institution to become so beloved and so big that um, it's 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 tough to when when you, when you know that that there is going to be potential for splits, it can be tough to make that last judgment call. But the problem is, you end up being the frog in the proverbial uh, 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 boiling pot. Right. Yeah. I, I think there are there are so many institutions. And quite frankly, even the Episcopal Church up until very recently, as a on on paper, was a thoroughly Orthodox church. It's the the these institutions fail not because the ideas that founded them or even that keep them afloat are incorrect. It's because individuals who occupy the seats of power and authority are not virtuous frankly, <laughs> whether it be because they're outright heretics or because they lack the courage to say, you know what, this might make people like me less, but I have to do it because this is what faithfulness requires. And I would add on that very often there is an invisible or less visible um, majority of faithful who are depending on you to, to stand up for, for orthodoxy. So... I'll get off my uh, my little uh, high horse here, and uh, <laughs> Father Rayberg, I think it is your turn to read, though. All right. Now, pragmatism of this sort may seem to leave religion exposed to the shifting winds of human opinion, and not to mention the charges brought against the Church of England by infallibilists of both branches. We have seen how Newman in his Anglican days confessed that faith must be guided by probabilities and that doubt is always our portion in this life. But Newman, it may be, it may be maintained, was here under a mistaken notion of the function and scope of probability, a mistake which helps to explain his later defection from the body he was defending. Historic evidence can never rise above the probable, 
Though unprejudiced scholarship can and does say that the external evidence for Jesus' own avowed pretensions to the messianic role is so convincing as to leave no sound warrant for doubt. But it does not follow that the pragmatic test of our faith in Jesus, as in very truth in the the incarnate word is subject to the same conditions, except in those cases of miraculously sudden conversion, of which the Anglican is temperamentally suspicious, though he would not deny their occasional happening. It may be that the Christian convert must begin with the probabilities with which history ends. It may be that he will never attain to that ecstasy of immediate knowledge claimed by the mystics, of which again the Anglican is inclined by nature to be skeptical. But quickly or slowly, the experiment of believing may pass into experience, and the result of experience may be of such a kind as to bring the believer, however incapable he may be of convincing others, to a sure conviction that he has chosen the right way. He may come to know by effects which leave for him no doubt of their cause that that the Christ in whom he trusts is not dead but living, and that faith has brought him into touch with fact. Nor is it arrogant to suggest that the Anglican insistence on distinguishing the fundamentals or the one fundamental of Christian theology may help to clarify this fundamental of Christian experience. At any rate, the pragmatist may be aware of the working of divine grace and certified of of revelation, and this without leaning for support on the theory of an oracular infallibility committed to any visible organ of speech. Such, very nearly, would appear to be the meaning of Chillingworth in his retort upon the Romanists. You content not yourselves with a moral certainty of the things you believe, nor with such a degree of assurance of them as is sufficient to produce obedience to the condition of the new covenant, which is all that we require. God's Spirit, if he please, may work more, a certainty of adherence beyond a certainty of evidence, But neither God doth nor man may require of us as our duty to give a greater assent to the conclusion than the premises deserve. Wow, there's a lot there. Um, And this time, I think it's uh, our turn to put Andrew on the spot. It is. (laughs) And so, you know, this pragmatism keeps getting worked out. And uh, I chuckle a little bit. It's kind of commentary on the stereotypical, you know, uh, Englishman or Anglican on how we're very suspect on any sort of sudden conversion. And uh, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis, you know, who described his own conversion as walking through a park, as I recall, and (laughs) he began the walk not believing in God. And then by the time the walk had concluded, he was convinced that there was a God. (laughs) And so, you know, we we do believe that, uh, that such sudden conversions do happen. Uh, I do kind of chuckle that he says that, you know, it's it's an exception, and uh, and in my own experience, it has been more of an exception to the rule than kind of a slow wrestling with the faith, and then eventually, you know, coming to terms and, and finding oneself as being converted. You know, having a a change of direction, a change of mind uh, on one's path. But that being said, you know, what I kind of gather from this paragraph, there's a lot to be gathered from and shifted through, is that we're very much a practical kind of religion. In terms of laying things out and saying that when you come to the faith, you come to it and you have to wrestle with who God is. As he said in a previous paragraph, it really ultimately comes to you know, what Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And when wrestling with that fact, you know, we go back to the scriptures to discover who Christ is. 
and even after wrestling with it and becoming convinced of it and converting, the Anglican path is one in which that conversion is a change of one's life. It's a repentance, uh, like any good uh, uh, Protestant religion. It's one of turning away from uh, your past and finding yourself uh, in a newness of life because of uh, where you've been grafted into the branch of uh, the family of God. And I would add that we are, we're skeptical by nature. Not all of us are. There's many Anglicans who are very much more uh, the charismatic strand, but for the most part, uh, we shy away from the, the sudden uh, uh, you know, gift of tongues or some sort of sudden miraculous spiritual experience because we, we look to more of the practicalities of our own religion, the fact that in order to be converted, you must hear the gospel. The gospel must be preached. And once you hear that gospel, it's going to make you wrestle one way or the other. You know, is this a truth, what is being spoken to you from the scriptures? Is this the actuality of what happened 2,000 years ago on a hill in Calvary? Or is this just a bunch of, you know, made-up, you know, stories? And that's the practicality of what every man and woman uh, has to deal with when hearing the gospel. And so the Anglican faith is one in which wrestling is appreciated and having doubts is understandable because we are all human at the end of the day. We're all, as Luther puts it, simultaneously sinners and saints. But at the same time, we have a deep enough well in our faith that there are sudden conversions. There are people who get smacked off of their horse while riding to a town and become the greatest apostles, St. Paul. Amen. And we don't have apostles today, but we certainly have men and women who get smacked off of our own horses, off our own paths, and you know, find you know, the living God, you know, the Holy Trinity, and are changed by that experience. And there's those of us who you know, go ever deeper, you know, ever upper, and ever more, into the spiritual life and uh, are changed and transformed. So that's the beauty to me of the Anglican faith. Uh, I was having a conversation, to digress a second, with a, a buddy of mine. He's been exploring the Anglican faith, and the beauty of it is that we are pragmatic because we have said, what are the essentials of this faith? And we have laid that down in our own uh, 39-hour articles in the Book of Common Prayer, but we are also deep enough to look back to the holy tradition of the church to mine from that well and also from that spiritual tradition of where, you know, I use this word hesitantly because it's so deep with meaning. But you can also have a mystic spirituality in the Anglican experience. We just don't simply say you have to have that mystic spirituality in order to be truly Christian or that you're off on the wrong path if you don't have it. But we have a deep enough well of where you can drink from the water very easily and receive the cup of salvation from the basic doctrines of the faith through justification by faith, that through having a lively faith that produces good works. And you can go ever further and ever deeper in that well and by God's grace, you know, experience them even more deeply and even more profoundly. Yeah, Andrew, that's great. I would even add to your um, the mystical experience bit. We would even say that if you do have an authentic mystical experience, that's wonderful. But it, another difference would be maybe that that doesn't make you sort of a first-rate citizen in the kingdom of God versus everybody else. 
which is something that very often tends to happen in uh, the way that saints are treated in Roman Catholicism. And also my own experience in Pentecostalism was that, well, you know, let us know when you get the quote unquote gifts and then we'll start talking about, you know, uh, leadership in the church or something along those lines. But. That's well said. And then one thing I'll add as a caveat is that in the Anglican tradition, like having, you know, any sort of, I don't know how I want to phrase, but having any sort of mystic spirituality, which I'm not one who really has that in my life of a mystic spirituality, but those who do, you know, it's never going to contradict the ultimate foundation of our faith as Anglicans. That is Holy Scripture. And so that's the other asterisk where other faith traditions, you know, someone will have a vision, someone will have a dream, someone will have some mystical experience and it will suddenly, you know, contradict some aspect of scripture, you know, the Anglican will say you were certainly off the path, you know, that, that cannot be accurate. You need to sit down and question, you know, you need to frankly do what St. Paul says, test the spirits, you know, is what you're receiving necessarily, you know, coming from, you know, God, because it cannot contradict the scriptures, the basis of our faith and of our salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Father Raber, you, you've mentioned that uh, your parish is, sort of of the uh, high church Anglo-Catholic bent. Um, what do you think of pragmatism, mystical Christianity, pragmatic mysticism? What do you think of these ideas? I think the, the desire for the dramatic experience can be very seductive. Um, you know, we, we've seen that as something that we have in the past wrestled with um, in, in, on the parish level, um, you know, at, at other times as well, where, where there is this desire for the mystical experience, the dramatic experience, the sudden conversion. And the, the, the problem is that often it just doesn't last. And, and folks will get into this um, pattern of seeking after the next big theme all the time where authentic Christian discipleship tends to be, and I'm borrowing a phrase I heard this week on the White Horse Inn, it tends to be a long walk in, in one direction. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and the beauty, I think, of the prayer book tradition is that it gives us the tools to, to, to make that long walk without getting discouraged. I mean, it, it gives us the offices. Um, it gives us uh, really what we need for, for intercessory prayer. I, I was, um, I had a, I, we've been, one of the things we've been trying to, trying to do this year in the parish is um, foster that rhythm of the daily offices into everything we do. And so that means, okay, if we're going to, ha- we, and we just started doing this, but if we're going to have midweek meetings, whether it's a Bible study, a vestry meeting, um, the intercessors getting together to pray for the needs of the parish, at the very least, let's open things with an abbreviated version of morning or evening prayer, depending on when that's happening, um, so that we can set the tone for what we're doing uh, within the tools that we've been given. 
And, and so last night I was um, doing a little little training session with with the intercessors using using the prayer book for what they they feel called to do. And um, one of the uh, the ladies who has been with our parish um, longer than anybody else. Um, I was I think I was just a little kid when she joined the parish, <laughs> so way before my mm. time. Um, some, something that she did in the early days of the parish prayer ministry was she would if, if a if a prayer request came in through through the internet or over the phone or something like that, um, she would find something in the prayer book, um, maybe reword it a little bit to fit the specific situation, and then send it back out. Now that's a good and, angle right there. That's correct. Oh, oh yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 so I was seeing some examples of this as as we were we were doing the intercessory prayer um, meeting yesterday. I was like, wow, this is so neat. And, and it occurred to me that you could just go through that prayers and Thanksgiving section. And maybe if sometimes there's going to be certain things that just aren't part of what's going on in your community life or your individual life, or your family life or whatever, but you could spend a long time doing fruitful prayer with that. And, and, and I think it's fruitful in a way that you're not going to see with the dramatic, the mystical as often. You might get the feels from that stuff, but um, it's not necessarily going to be as solidly rooted. It's, it's going to be a little, a little shallower. And, mm. and, and, I, and, and it's not good for for the life of, of the community to be chasing after the shallow, but it, it means it's the fast food of, of, of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's really well put. And cause you kind of, you helped me reflect a little bit more father Isaac on what I really wanted to articulate. Cause I was one who was driven for and towards the mystical experience. Uh, it's a very romantic ideal to go after. And I don't say this to say, you know, don't, don't expect it or don't think that God doesn't, you know, speak to people in that way. But just remember that Scripture is the spoken word of God that he's given us. And that's the ultimate root that we base our beliefs on. And that asterisk set aside, yeah, I really went for that. I had a period of time which I explored Eastern Orthodoxy. They are known for a mystical tradition, a very beautiful mystical tradition. But I also realized I was really pursuing uh, something for myself, for my own gain. It was consumerism by a different name. You know, I thought I was avoiding consumerism, and I was re- really making my own mysticism uh, turn into my own version of consumerism. I wanted to consume that mystical experience, and mm-hmm. that's not the focus. The focus and the beauty of the prayer book tradition is that it makes us all Benedictine monks. And as right. y'all all know, that the order that Thomas Cramner put the Book of Common Prayer in was drawing from the daily offices that the Benedictines uh, were using and basically abbreviating those offices and the wonderfulness of under the classic rubric, which I wish and I hope it's printed in the new proposed ACNA Book of Common Prayer, is that every ordained clergyman is to do the uh, the daily offices each and every day. You know That is one of your commitments as being a clergyman. And frankly, as a lay member, before I was ordained a deacon, I got in that habit of doing uh, the daily offices. And, you know, if you're working, you know, and it's hard to get through the offices, although I, I do say they're really short. You know, you can 
wake up a little bit earlier and you can do it. But there's the beauty of the family prayer section in the back of the American 1928, which is a more abbreviated morning and evening prayer. And if you get in that habit, it puts you into a discipline of trying to be constantly in prayer and focusing your morning and your evening into a life of prayer so that you can focus yourself throughout the day, no matter what your vocation is. Because the beauty of what Martin Luther pointed out is that you are just as much serving God as a farmer, as a businessman, as you know, a plumber, no matter what you do in life. You do it to your best, and you can be rooted into the life of a monk by simply serving your neighbor in the work that you do and then rooting yourself into a morning and evening prayer discipline so that you have a life of prayer. That's a true mysticism, because somehow, uniquely, we are serving as Christ to others, and we're serving Christ himself when we go to work and when we work with other people. I can't help, because I just read this yesterday, from Matthew, when Christ talks about, you know, whenever you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, and of course, those who are faithful say, when did we ever do those things? And Christ tells them, I tell you, whenever you serve the least of these, you served me. And that's ultimately the beauty of the prayer book life when it's lived out, is that we're living a mystical life by simply serving others, praying our prayers, and doing the simple things in life, which are the most profound things, because it's all about loving those whom we are with, our families, our neighbors, our society. I actually had an experience, ironically, uh, <laughs> related to that. <laughs> oh, 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 our experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was, uh, I was uh, a couple nights ago, um, you know, the family had gone to bed, and I'm usually the last one to go to bed because um, we have babies, and that means <laughs> that everybody goes to bed earlier than I would like mm-hmm. to. Um, <laughs> but, um, oh, I was so grumpy that night. Um, I was... I was, uh, you know, feeling completely overwhelmed with, um, with, with just juggling things that had to be done. Um, kind of a post vacation catch up. Um, I was, I was just, I was angry with everybody and I didn't really have any good reason for it, but I was, I was just sinfully grumpy. I would, I would even say, and, um, I had not yet done my evening office and, you know, that, that one voice in my head says, well, you're too busy to do their, your office tonight. Get, you know, why don't you stay up late, push through, get stuff done, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, you don't have time to pray. And then the other voice was the voice of some mentors that, well, A, this is good for you. B, you've made a commitment. Fine, I'll go do my office. <laughs> and I went into it completely reluctantly and grumpily, but... Um, I, I tell you what, by, by the time I got to the end of the psalm, and it was one of those long psalms, um, like, you know, 40-some verse psalms, mm-hmm. by the time I got to the end of the psalm, you know, the, the Lord had softened my heart and, um, you know, and, and had really, you know, the, the, a lot of those temptations had been pushed away by the word of God. Um, and it was, it was, it was good. It was, and, you know, and I didn't even sing the office that night. Usually I chant the offices cause that gives me some of that mystical, uh, <laughs> experience to chant them. But you know, it wasn't even like that, but yeah, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. And I like how you mentioned, uh, it was a longer Psalm. I know sometimes yeah. <laughs> when I feel like I'm in a hurry, uh, and I, and I go and, and it's like, Ooh, it's one of those 
big psalm psalter portions you know like dang it but <laughs> but um <laughs> but uh so that that kind of that kind of made me chuckle but i i think you guys are touching on um some really important things i mean i too was drawn to uh mystical theology especially um on my way out of evangelicalism and you know i i to this day i'm still someone who appreciates trace of evola or saint john of the cross and i think these people have uh something to offer but also a lot of what you guys describe and i think you've you've put well is in fact like an error of approaching um god even from the mystical perspective to to point that out i mean neither of those figures actually was out seeking an experience you know uh, the true mystic is seeking god and if god so chooses to give you a, a nice experience well that's that's terrific and and clearly in his wisdom he thought that was the right thing to do at that moment and and you know to reinforce what both of you have said about sort of the wisdom of the daily office and the prayer book rhythm that benedictine rhythm of prayer uh it does give you something to keep you going on that long walk um even if experiences or feelings or you know these sort of good reinforcing things that crop up every once in a while even if those are sparse we still have something we have good food to nourish us for the way and i think that's you know chasing after experiences is, is bad news no matter what um and i think any any good mystic would tell you that and that the good nourishing scriptural bits that we get from the prayer book spirituality uh they it is it is solid and it's something that encourages a certain spiritual maturity uh, so that we can be make sure that we're seeking after the right things, the most important things. And if that kind of gets back into this uh, pragmatic uh, issue or um, consideration, then I think that's worth noting as well. It kind of keeps keeps the cross in the front, keeps you know sin and repentance and God's grace at the forefront, and it keeps huge chunks of scripture reading um in in your life and and that's all uh, i would say indispensable to to every practic uh, christian whether they be of the mystical bent or not um what one other issue i appreciated from this section was just the fact that um clearly reading chillingworth here and more um, there's this issue of, hey, so there's Anglicanism, there's Roman Catholicism, there's there's divisions, there's different churches, but at the end of the day, the issue of conversion, of faith, of skepticism, of how does this bring me to Jesus, um, and how is my faith secured in Christ, um, continues to be a live conversation. So in that way, I... I really genuinely appreciate Moore's emphasis here and maybe as being sort of a non-theologian he kind of brings this more um, sort of practical uh, 
uh, aspect into light. So I really, I've really appreciated that part. You know, just the hey, how does how do Anglicans think about um, conversion, and uh, what are we supposed to do with our doubts, with our skepticism, and is that you know a necessary bar to faith? And these are just such practical. Um, considerations that we sometimes forget about we think well these are these are uh this is a christian conversation and clearly you've already settled all those things if you're trying to figure out which denomination to join but you know what that's not always uh the best way to look at it i think sometimes the biggest uh problem with modern churches especially of the traditional bent is that we kind of assume a certain Christian vocabulary or we uh, assume a certain base knowledge and we don't often speak in terms of that the non-believer or the unchurched can relate to. And I think, hey, is this real or not? <laughs> Am I yep. a fool for believing this or not? Those are imminently practical questions that um, the, the Christian should keep in mind as well. So I found that emphasis uh, really helpful. And I think, um, you know, it's a good reminder that uh, you, you never really stop doing apologetics. Um, I haven't. You know, I've, I sometimes I have to remind myself why I believe certain things. And, and that's because, you know, I live in a, a fallen, sinful body and and uh, I, I need my faith bolstered from now and now and again you know and um that's the kind of humble approach to these profoundly um life-changing truths that i think the unbeliever needs to see in us to see anything uh inspiring beyond uh the the marbeck or the talus or the the so on and so forth Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, yeah, I mean, it, it, it really is, um, and it's and, and it is all too easy to 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 get into a um, a Christianese. Um, you know, I, I what one of the things that is at times disappointing to me being um, part of a higher church. Um, you know, with the smells and the bells in terms of our parish life, is that we are so much less likely to get unbelievers um, in our midst than we are to get disaffected evangelicals or disaffected Episcopalians or even disaffected Roman Catholics. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's not a user-friendly service. Um, I'm not sure that it's supposed to be a user-friendly service, um, but you know there there ought to be something that that does. We 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 ought to see conversions, um, and not just not just transfer growth. Yeah, and let me jump in real quick to say that to that extent, something that I learned from the Orthodox that I think Anglicans should stress more often is that when it's your first time to attend an Anglican service, don't worry about fussing around with the prayer book 
And I know a lot of parishes now have like basically your prayer bulletin where it's outlined in your bulletin. So you can follow alone. But if you don't have one of those bulletins that really tells you how to get through the service, don't worry. Don't panic about getting through the Book of Common Prayer. Just listen to the service and just kind of be immersed in it. It doesn't matter if you're not participating by saying all the words exactly when they need to be said. Just let it rush over you, kind of like being in the ocean. Just let the waves of the liturgy hit you. And as you attend over and over again, you'll start to learn that liturgy. And you're still worshiping, even by simply listening and participating a little bit here and a little bit there. It's a lot. It was a lot easier for me to really, you know, come into Anglicanism and get it and understand it a lot quicker once I stopped fussing about with the prayer book, trying to get everything organized and ready to go in the pew, and just simply listen and participate by listening. And then as you learn it, you can participate by repeating, you know, different aspects of the liturgy itself. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting. I think that's a great point. Um, there's a sort of the patristic practice of having the service of the catechumens um, that maybe we could re-emphasize in, in modern Anglican context, which is to say, look, we should expect to have guests and people who don't know the liturgy uh, from front to back. And we should ex- have a sense in which it's a comfortable place for them to attend without that expectation um, of knowing where to turn at every point or, you know, uh, which which hymns are which. And so I think um, sometimes we, yeah, we, we get into a sort of cultural uh, Christianity, which, which again, I don't think we have to choose between the two, or we're so, so sort of tied up in doing things our way that we forget to um, make a point to leave the front door open and to be inviting and to do things our way. And, and I think, fr- frankly, I think a lot of people uh, coming from outside of the church appreciate that. They want to know that you have a way of doing things. It, it kind of, it's expected. You, you wouldn't go into an Eastern Orthodox church or, or frankly, a, a, a visit a mosque or something and assume that everyone's like bending over backwards to show you what the meaning of everything they're doing. That in itself is, is almost would be off-putting, I might think, you know. But to have a, a service where people are sort of confident in who they are and the way that they're expressing their devotion to Christ, but at the same time, there's room in that gathering for people who are new and who don't know that, and they're just there to, to learn. Um, so, I, as in most, thing, most things, I, I tend to find that the best version of a via media is a both-and rather than an, an either-or or a sort of splitting the difference. Um, and yeah, I think, I think that's kind of where I come down on those sorts of things. Because we don't want to lose what makes Anglicanism distinct or great or wonderful, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. those, those things can be attractive from the outside as well. Yeah. I mean, even, even my, my, my lament about, um, the, the, the lack of, of, of the unbeliever, um, you know, there, there's, we're, we're not departing from the traditional service. I mean, there's, there's, there's just no way that, 
that we would do that. It, it, it doesn't make sense to do that. Um, it, it's, it would be going so against our convictions and our beliefs and our own formation to do that um, because it is such a rich biblical way of doing worship. And truly beautiful too, when when we do have the talus and the merbeck, and the uh, the Gregorian chant and whatnot. Yeah, I agree. I think you know one thing I would love to see, and in my one my my one visit to England that I I really appreciated. Uh, I think in the American context, we could really do to emphasize the even song service as a sort of. Um, a, a invitation to the public to come and see and taste that there's beauty here and where there's beauty, there's also goodness and truth. Um, in England, it's, you know, there's a certain hour of the day and there's a parish church. You can see a steeple somewhere and um, it's not terribly difficult to find a, a place where you can sit down and if you want to talk to the to the vicar, you can. And if you don't, that's okay too, you know. But but there's a sense in which uh, the church really does serve the whole people, and it allows for a little more of that. Maybe maybe we'll, we could do to um, you know cultivate that an ambiguous state between um, doubt and faith, and for those who are working through these things, um, to say, well, you know, you can, you can come to us and you don't have to know how everything works, but you can have an experience of the full fledged beauty of Anglican Evensong. Um, and there's somebody to ask questions of too, but if you're in a hurry or if you need to think some more <laughs> before you get to those questions, then there's room to sort of duck out the back door. So I, I think it's an interesting cultural feature of the established church over in England. Um, and I'd love to see if, if there's any way that American parishes can sort of replicate or, or sort of retrofit it to, to fit our, our own cultural context. But... Um, on that note, this has been uh, a great conversation, and we're going a little long, but I just love having uh, all three of us on the same track here, and I think we should maybe call it a day and meet back up and talk about section Roman numeral 8 of Moore's essay. Sounds, Sounds great. great. It's always a pleasure, guys. Yes, indeed. Likewise. Great. Thanks. Bye. It was the spirit of our forefathers that built that grand building. I believe that that spirit is with us still and will help us to, to rebuild it one day when we've served and suffered a while, a little longer. Build it again to the, to the glory of, of Jesus Christ. Miserable Offenders is a production of the North American Anglican. Learn more at N-O-R-T-H-A-M Anglican.com.